0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Connected and Ready, an ongoing conversation about innovation, resilience, and our capacity to succeed, brought to you by Microsoft. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a technology journalist and author, and I'm going to be exploring trends around how companies are adapting to a disrupted world and preparing for tomorrow. We're going to speak to the innovators who are bringing products, operations, and people together in new ways. In today's episode, I'm chatting to Mark Griswold, Professor of Radiology and Faculty Director of the Interactive Commons at Case Western Reserve University. Mark talks to me about his journey using mixed reality to teach anatomy with HoloLens, how medical education has changed over the past year, and what the opportunities are in healthcare and beyond for mixed reality technologies. Mark, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show. Why don't you start by giving us a little bit of an introduction to yourself?
1: Sure. Um, So I'm a professor of radiology at Case Western Reserve University, which is in Cleveland, Ohio, in the United States. And um, I kind of have two jobs there. Uh, In my one day job, I design and try to optimize MRI scanners, the tubes that take pictures of the inside of your body. But then the other job is I'm the faculty director of something called the Interactive Commons, where we're trying to think about the future of education and how that relates to the future of work in society. Um, And it's one of the places that we've been doing a lot of development for mixed reality devices like HoloLens.
0: Amazing. Yeah, we definitely want to dive into HoloLens and mixed reality and what you're doing now. But before we do that, let's rewind the clock back um, a little bit to the point that when you first sort of saw the opportunity with mixed reality, what were you sort of setting out to try and solve for when you first sort of conceived of using mixed reality for what then became HoloAnatomy?
1: Yeah, so back in 2014, through that innovation center, we were part of a team that was really challenged to figure out a way to teach human anatomy completely digitally we were in the process of building a new medical education center with cleveland clinic it's a huge building and the question was whether we should put a cadaver lab in there you know these conventional kind of labs where you go and dissect the human body that's the way that we've learned human anatomy for hundreds of years at this point And our administration asked the the pretty revolutionary question, could we do this completely digitally? So they looked and they said, here's this guy who's got a background in medical imaging, which is looking at human anatomy on a daily basis. We have this innovation institute, so let's see what they can do. So they challenged us with this and we started looking around at all kinds of technologies. We looked at big touchscreens and projectors and virtual reality And to be honest, none of them were really compelling enough and really detailed enough to work to the extent that we thought it could. Our class size is 185 students now each year. And you can imagine that their schedule is unbelievably packed every minute of every day. So when you're imagining our anatomy class, we have to teach about 50 kids all at the same time. And so a lot of solutions just go out, you know, I, I don't have the space in my room to have whole touch screens or things like projectors are really hard because do the students get in the way of the projector or big screens? How does that work? So it was really kind of challenging.
0: And could you tell us a little bit then of what it looks like now? You use HoloLens for anatomy. tell us what's the sort of experience of learning anatomy virtually like this?
1: Yeah, sure. Maybe just a quick rewind. So the, we were doing those, those initial experiments in 2014. And then through some of our connections into Microsoft research, we went and saw HoloLens before it was public. Um, we went into the, the secret cave of a lab. And it was the first time that when I put this device on my head and our whole team did, had the exact same reaction, that we knew that the world had changed that this was a tool that was going to change everything about our jobs, the way that we taught, the way that we looked at the future. And we left there knowing that this is what we needed to do. So that was December 17th, 2014. And our team basically spent five years developing what's now hollow anatomy. In July of 2019, so last year, we moved into the new building, which is, I think, 220,000 square feet, It looks like a football stadium and prominently located on the second floor is a lab, which looks just like a room. So when you walk into the room, there's just four walls. There's no furniture, really. There's just some places where you can put your books and your bags on the side. This is, again, pre-COVID times, but we would have 50 students in the room at a time and they would pull out their HoloLens and put it on their head. And they're arranged in normally about eight groups of four, five, six students at a time, and in the middle of them, there is a holographic body that is life-size, standing up, and we can display essentially any part of the body, um, take things in and out, um, make things transparent, and really give the students a compelling look at, you know, the relationship between structures, the sizes of structures, in a way that you just can't any other way.
0: So let's talk a little bit about COVID in a second because obviously you guys are in some sense streets ahead of probably everyone else. But before we do that, I guess the big question that probably a lot of people will have with this idea of learning anatomy Mm -hmm. virtually versus having a cadaver lab What's the difference in terms of learning, um, you know, in this kind of very physical, very experiential way versus virtually?
1: Yeah, and, and this is such an important question because there's all kinds of new technology that's coming up all the time. And in particular, for something as important as medicine, we, we had to make sure that this is actually working. So we started working on HoloLens really in 2015. And spent over a year of just developing the, the core technologies, the backbones, the frameworks, things like that. And then starting in 2016, we were just doing many tests with our students, with, with outside advisors, to really establish how students were learning in this new medium and what we could do to improve that over where we were. And what we saw over and over and over again through, I think we've done over a dozen, and I think we're probably getting close to two dozen trials now, is that the students are learning faster and achieving the same level of understanding as they did in the cadaver lab. We've shown almost a factor of two increase in in learning speed. But then some more recent work that we've done has shown that students are actually retaining knowledge better when they see it in Holland. So we've done comparisons across our whole medical school class and the students have shown about a 44% higher retention scores after eight months as compared to The students who saw the modules in HoloLens are showing about 44% increased retention as compared to the rest of the class that only saw information in the cadaver lab.
0: I was going to say, but what about this, as I say, emotional point, right? I haven't studied medicine, but I can imagine going into a cadaver lab and working with a a physical body is a very particular kind of experience for medical students, um, especially in terms of coming to terms with death and working with physical anatomy and physical parts both from an emotional sense, but also in terms of handling too. What's the difference?
1: Yeah, we take this very seriously. And and this was one of the reasons why we've done so many trials. And where we've landed on our program is that students do a two-week boot camp during their first year of medical school with us. And it is primarily to go after those emotional and ethical kinds of topics that you're talking about. It's a small fraction of our students that have actually lost someone close to them, including a parent or grandparent. And so this really is, as you mentioned, the first time a lot of these kids are confronting death and confronting this part of life. But I want to just highlight that previously they would learn that at the same time that they were learning or supposed to be learning the structures of the human body in an anatomy class. And what we've done, I think, makes sense is that now we've separated out all of those emotional components. And so now we can focus on those. So that first two weeks, they are doing dissections and they are getting that experience, but they're focused on what is the emotional impact on me? What is the ethical things that are happening in, in this world? And I think that allows us to address those issues much better. They actually meet family members of the people who've donated their bodies. They, they hold a memorial service. It's, it's I think, really important. But then when they're learning the structures of the body, now we're doing that separately. And I'll say that we do something called GARLA, which is now a three-part program. So hollow anatomy is one of the core parts. They also do radiology. This is the way that our doctors see the human body every day. That's looking inside, looking at anatomy. But in a normal medical school, we don't have time to teach that normally. And so that would normally be something that students would learn in residency or maybe in some of their clinical rotations, but now we're able to make this a core part of their education. And then the third cornerstone is um, something we call physical diagnosis supported by ultrasound. So it's living anatomy, where they're working with real volunteers who come in and they're you know looking at their bones and looking at the anatomical landmarks and then looking inside a living person with ultrasound. And so we think the combination of those three methods actually is really going to give our students an advantage. So in those first two weeks, we're focusing on the emotional side of it, and then the rest of their time, we think that we've got a really optimized program for teaching them the structures of the human body, anatomy. Microsoft Dynamics 365 Remote Assist leverages mixed reality to enable remote technicians to collaborate with experts and solve problems in real time. Request a live demo today by following the link in the episode description.
0: So you mentioned COVID as well. And of course, um, that's, I suppose, on everyone's mind, but particularly when it comes to thinking about using digital technologies as a replacement for real life in-person teaching. But it sounds like what you guys were doing, even though the lab was a physical space in the building, it's not so much that what you were using digital technology for was a replacement as such. It wasn't so much as going, we wish we could do it physically, but we can't, so we're going to do it virtually, which is what's been happening a lot with Technology as a sort of replacement around COVID, but really you were using it because it was actually better based on your studies. What's been the experience for you guys with COVID, and perhaps also how has it differed from perhaps colleagues or friends that you know at other medical schools who haven't had the capability that you've had with um, Hollow Anatomy?
1: So. You know, cadaver lab in particular is a very crowded place. So in COVID times, I actually think that anybody who's relying on a cadaver lab is going to struggle to get students through anatomy just because of the physical constraints of that environment. We're fortunate enough to have a little bit of advanced warning of what was coming. So our students were on spring break um, the week of March 9th when the first COVID case appeared in Ohio. We looked at our team and we realized that this is going to get overwhelming, let's say. And when we looked at our schedule, we had about two weeks until the next anatomy class was going to be taught. So we looked at the team and we had been doing enough research and had enough of our backbone built out to do remote that we give everybody one week on our team to turn around a new framework to run anatomy completely remotely through the help of some of our colleagues at Microsoft, and gathered up a group of 185 HoloLenses, one for each of our students. And a week after we started, we shipped everything from (laughs) overnight to all the students. We trained them the next few days. And in that time period, the state of Ohio went into a shutdown. So all of our medical schools outside of Case shut down. But because our students had, we had already gotten the lenses in the air, and they were in their hands, by the time the next class turned around, um, we were up and running and students didn't miss a day of class. And we've interviewed many of them since then, and they're, they said some interesting things. And my favorite one was from a woman who said, This felt like the only thing that was consistent in our life at this point, that everything else had been turned upside down. But when they went into their hollow anatomy class, it felt just like normal, even though they were all in their own homes. And that to me was really satisfying that you can imagine that now not only are we able to teach, we're able to teach remotely. And again, we're, we're up against hundreds of years of history of teaching anatomy. And now our students were saying, no, this feels like home to me. This new thing feels comfortable and normal to me. And I, I'm really happy that our team has been able to pull this off. You know, we've We've taken a few hundred years of history and in five years, essentially, we've turned it around to where our students have a new normal. So we're, I think we're pretty well set up for the future now.
0: You guys have been working with um, HoloLens for about five years now. You've probably had lots of different ups and downs, lots of different challenges, lots of different hurdles. Um, and of course, improved stuff over time from those learnings. I wonder if you could share perhaps maybe some of the key learnings, you know, what has made this successful for you guys and for people sort of listening What kind of questions should they be asking? What should they expect from this this process of getting on board?
1: The first thing that you've got to recognize is the kind of visceral reaction that people have to the technology. Seeing something in three dimensions in front of you at your human scale is something that most people have never done. And so it's really jarring for people at first. And I think that starts the conversation already off on a foot where people Realize that this isn't an incremental thing. This is really something where it's a big change. And I think when we look at all of the things that we've talked about up till now, we're not talking about incremental changes really anywhere. And so anytime you're dealing with big changes that affect people's livelihoods, there's an instant resistance to that, just inherent in most people. For us, it was really acute at the beginning. We were fortunate enough to have two of the first HoloLenses outside of Microsoft, and it was such a big deal. I remember it was May 12, 2015, the FedEx box. We had been tracking it across the country, and it showed up, and I met the FedEx driver at the door, and we got this this like Christmas in May package, and we brought it up <laughs> to the lab. We had to have this double-locked lab with cameras and everything. And we opened it up and we knew that our job was to get the anatomy faculty onto this new platform that we had essentially already decided. So we sent an email out to the faculty saying, hey, do you guys want to come try this? It's here. We're ready. And more than half of them just said, no, I don't even want to see it. And <laughs> that was that was kind of shocking. You know, as a tech person, it wow. was like, you don't even want to come play. And they were just like, no, I'm too busy. <laughs> and so that was already a, a, you know, an indicator of what kind of you know barrier we're going to have to get through. Um, but Sue Wishbrot, one of our, our lead anatomists, said, okay, I'll come look at it. And we had purchased an anatomy model online and we put it in and we were so proud of ourselves that we could take our two lenses that we had and we could both see the same thing in the same place, which was really technically it took a lot of work to do. And Sue came over to the lab and we showed it to her and she said, this might work for kindergarten but will never work for our anatomy curriculum at the university (laughs) and we just were floored so i just kept talking to her and it probably took two or three months of me asking her over and over again sue what's something that you can't do very well in a cadaver lab that we might have a chance to do and she didn't really want to even address the question at the beginning but we, we settled on that you, you couldn't see the diaphragm very well, right? The muscle that helps us breathe in a cadaver. It's so thin that it's, it's really difficult to see. So I said, okay, let's take that on. And then finally, after about six weeks, she said, this is starting to look okay. And then finally, it got to the point where she said, okay, this is showing stuff that I know is true, but I can't see it in a cadaver. And then we did our first real experiment with students. It was on September 16th, 2016. And universally, the students looked at what was there, and their favorite part of the body that they saw was the diaphragm. They were laying down on the floor, and you could hear auditory oohs and ahs, and they were all pointing at the diaphragm. And so in the end of the day, it was worth spending the time on that, that one structure, but you had to have a hook in now, if you ask today, you know, five years later, she says, I think we've got the best anatomy program in the world. So she, she's gone from, you know, this is kindergarten to now she's just super proud of what we've got. And, she's, she, and I think we're all convinced that this is the best thing for the students right now.
0: What do you think has changed the technology since you first discovered it and started playing with it in 2014 till now? What weren't you able to do at the beginning that you're now able to do? And what would you still like to be able to do that currently uh, the technology is perhaps not quite there, it's still developing?
1: Yeah, well, I think the number one barrier to this technology is still the cost. It still is relatively expensive, given you don't have a, a lot of applications for it, but it's really clear that that's gonna be changing. Alex Kipman from Microsoft has talked about how this will be the technology that will replace things like cell phones. And I absolutely agree with that view when you look forward. As soon as you can get the headset to be as small as a pair of glasses and as cheap or cheaper than a cell phone, then I don't see any reason why this wouldn't be the kind of thing that we would use in normal life all the time. I often say that this is going to impact every job in the world. And I really mean that, that it's everybody who's even from a secretary to a janitor to the president of companies, this is going to impact their life. And it's just a question of when at this point. So going back to your question, I think the number one barrier is cost. And as soon as the cost comes down, we're going to see really big impacts. And then when I look forward, it needs to be smaller. It needs to be lighter lighter in particular, need to figure out a little bit better how to interact with this technology because we're still in this transition period away from screens into having holograms in our world. And there's still things that we're doing like 2D buttons that feel familiar to us, but we're asking questions all the time as to whether is that the best way to do it? Is there not a better way to do things in hologram than what we've done on screens or in in a conventional world?
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that kind of behavioural point. There's always the example that I think really brings it home. Um, the sort of potential we still have with so many of these technologies is, if you think about a smartphone, for a lot of people, you know, if you shut your eyes, you, you can't use it, <laughs> um, because it's, you know, an image on a screen, there's very little haptic feedback. Unless you already have the accessibility settings set up, you essentially can't use it. Whereas if you were to reach your hand out for your closest glass or cup of tea or whatever it is you have in front of you, the amount of information that you get You know, the weight, how cold it is, uh, tilting it, controls. There's so much more in terms of our senses and to be able to integrate more of both what we're able to do with our own bodies, but also changing behavior perhaps so that we expect different things with technology seems to to really kind of enhance things what would be if you could have anything what would you really love to see particularly with respect to teaching anatomy
1: well the thing that everybody always wants is to touch a hologram and so if you can get to the point where you've got some sort of haptic feedback then the change is really significant when you can start to touch things and move them around that's really great we're already seeing some benefit with the technology that's already in the new HoloLens. So the HoloLens V2 does hand tracking. So you can reach out and grab some of the models and move them around. And that's already changing the way that we're thinking about things. But when you add in haptics and you actually have that touch of the weight of something or the, the texture of something, it's just really going to take it to the next level these kind of dynamic interactions are really going to be powerful for the way that we teach, even outside of anatomy. You know, we're we're looking at courses all over the campus. We really view ourselves as the hollow university of the future. And, um, there's just so many things that we're going to be able to do with this technology.
0: Well, that was actually going to be my next question is where else do you see the opportunity? I wonder if you give us some examples of perhaps other types of classes that you might be able to teach, or even broader across healthcare. Where would you really see this potential in terms of specific examples?
1: Well, I think like most of the world's stuck in COVID right now. And I think that we're having a lot of different conversations now than we were six, eight, nine months ago. You know, back then, the, the cost of a headset was prohibitive, and people didn't necessarily see the benefit of it. And yet, at the same time, we had companies that were partners of ours, flying experts around the world, paying $10,000 for a one-way ticket on a business class flight, and then paying several thousand dollars in hotel fees for a week. And now, when they are in COVID times, our conversations are very different, where they can't even send that person anywhere. So now they're coming to us and saying, well, can you digitally take it to me? And now that $3,500 headset is revolutionary, but it doesn't seem so expensive anymore because it's, it actually allows you to do this work. I, I think this idea of bringing your presence somewhere else in the world is something that we're going to really have to get used to. This idea that you know we're, we're on a Teams meeting right now And I could ask the question, where is this meeting happening? And it's kind of a meta question, but it's really an important one because I think we could say it's happening in both of our rooms at the same time. And 10 years ago, that didn't really happen. But now when I can have this feeling of really teleporting my whole body, my whole appearance, like, you know, we're on teams right now. I don't know how tall you are. I don't know how big your room is. But now let's just imagine that I can essentially port myself from my house to your house and we could see how tall each other are, we could really, you know, see and feel like we're in the same room with each other. And doing that at what is realistically a pretty low cost, I think it's gonna have big impact for our society as a whole and how we do things. So going back to healthcare, you know, we can talk about telemedicine through a computer screen, but how about I get teleported in your house and I can look at your arm, it's hurting or Maybe there's an issue with a piece of equipment. Maybe I can go show you how to use a glucose meter in your house without physically having to go there. I think that there's just an endless number of things and it's all going to be dependent on our ability to transport ourselves in this new medium. And that we have no real idea how much impact that's going to have on our society yet.
0: So we've obviously talked about the massive opportunity within both teaching, but also healthcare, where mixed reality and HoloLens and these kind of technologies can have impact. But what about other industries? Do you think that there are certain industries that are perhaps more primed for adopting MR or using it well?
1: Well, I think obviously manufacturing is one of the big ones. You have these big factories with big pieces of equipment and typically you've got very few people in the world who understand each of those pieces of equipment and in the conventional world you know if something went wrong you would maybe pick up the phone or maybe that expert would get on an airplane and fly around and both of those have their real limitations and what we've seen dealing with some of our industrial partners is um What we've really seen is that you can, you know, look through somebody's eyes using something like Remote Assist, which is a Microsoft product, really to bring that expert anywhere in the world. And I think people are really jumping on that. The other thing, products like guides is something that we actually started conversations with Microsoft about really early. And this idea that you could put an instruction manual directly on a piece of equipment for maintenance or for operation, I think those are just no-brainers. And I think if every factory doesn't have a HoloLens in it in a few years, they're probably doing something wrong because this is just such a powerful technology. Along those same lines, industrial education is, I think, a big factor too. Um, there's a one um, company that we spoke to that was spending between 6 and $9 million a year on educating their manufacturing workforce. Because every time they have to make a new product or something like that, they have to spend huge amounts of time and effort to re-educate their workforce. Well, now if their workforce is being guided through a holographic guide, um, they may not have to spend as much. It could be that they could change things more quickly. They could get real-time assessments. So again, when when we're talking about a $3,500 headset compared to 6 to $9 million and re-educating a workforce, it seems like It's a new technology, but it seems like that could do that. Um, What we've seen in some of these other industries that are doing education of their workforce is that they're also seeing about two times faster education as compared to the conventional things. So, seeing things in mixed reality is really making a difference for people outside of medicine as well. Taking one step away from that, design and engineering is another place where we see huge, um, huge gains, you know, thinking, bringing in architecture and things like that as well. Right now, there's a lot of our world, which is basically involved with taking two-dimensional images from a screen and turning them into three-dimensional things, either in our mind or in real life. And the story I would like to tell is from neurosurgery, where these are people who are looking at the structures of the human body, and in particular, they're really small structures of the brain, and they're trying to do these microscopic surgeries, and they do that today by looking at a stack of two-dimensional images of the body, maybe from an MRI scanner or a CT scanner. My favorite thing that's happened is we did a course where, well, I guess favorite is maybe too, too strong of a word. It was favorite and horrifying all at the same time. We, <laughs> took, we, we had a surgeon come in, we had a group of surgeons come in, and we, we displayed a holographic version of the human brain, and in particular this one really small area at the base of the brain. And they looked at it and they said, no, that's wrong. And we said, what do you mean that's wrong? They said, that's not what it looks like. And we brought up one by one the MRI images that made up that model. And they could see that it matched perfectly. And so it wasn't that our models were wrong. It was that the three-dimensional model that they had built in their head was wrong. And you know, this is somebody who's highly functional. And yet, this ability to translate between 2D and 3D was different in their mind than in somebody else's mind. And there's all kinds of studies that show that this is true. So the ability to see things in 3D is already impacting our ability to do neurosurgery. We're actually doing remote planning of neurosurgery across multiple cities now. Uh, but that same technology is going to impact things like architecture, where you've got multiple clients, let's say in multiple cities or multiple designers, and they have to come to an agreement about a 3D space. Or it may be in maybe engineering world, somebody has to design a 3D part to fit a particular space or a piece of equipment. Um, And all of those rely on our ability to translate that 2D image from a screen or from a blueprint into the three-dimensional thing. And when we're seeing things in mixed reality and HoloLens or some other related technology, there's no mistakes anymore. Everybody sees everything the same way. And so it allows groups of people to make decisions where before there was always some level of disconnect. So we, for example, when we designed our room for Hollow Anatomy, the lab where we were, our um, architect was in London and we had multiple groups of people here in Cleveland. And there was 30 people who had to sign off on the design of the room. And getting 30 people together in the room with somebody who normally lives in London to make decisions about what was gonna happen in a room is really difficult. We had hours and hours of meetings. And finally we said, could you please just send us the model And we're going to put it in to HoloLens and we're all going to get together and make decision. They sent us the model. We had one half hour meeting. Everybody got on the same page. We made the decision. And that's what's built in the room right now. So I think for all of those kind of things where you're dealing with three dimensional objects or models, I think it's going to make a big impact.
0: I think what you said about COVID, I guess, changing the conversation and suddenly, for a lot of people, relevance of certain kinds of technologies seems almost like a no-brainer, whereas before it perhaps was a nice-to-have or a luxury or something kind of yeah. cool or interesting, I think is is a really interesting shift. I'm curious, in terms of the changes that have happened so far, what do you think is perhaps going to, in terms of the changes, going to stay even once we have a vaccine and we can physically meet up in the, in the same physical geographical space <laughs> that we can right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, so let me just talk in my area, you know, of somewhat expertise in the teaching and learning area. I think this really changes what it means to be at a university. Right now, there's a lot of emphasis that's placed on buildings and facilities and dorm rooms and all of those kinds of things my 18 year old son is in school right now in california but he's down in my basement in class and while it's not certainly far from ideal it certainly is working much better than it would have four or five ten years ago and that's a blink of an eye in the the way that universities change you know this change has happened really quickly and i think overall given the speed of the change is actually not so bad. I think that our students are learning pretty well. When I think just specifically about our anatomy curriculum, we did a, a whole study on them that was just published in JAMA Open in September, where we actually asked them, you know, how is this working? 85% of them said this is an effective way to learn anatomy. When we gave them a head-to-head choice, which one do you prefer? Do you prefer being in person or do you prefer being a remote of them preferred the remote education as compared to the in-person. And a lot of that, when you ask them, comes from that they had more room, they could study whenever they wanted because they had the piece of technology in their house. Those are numbers where we turned that around in a week. So what happens 10 years from now when we've really spent the time to think about how to do this right and how to do it in the best way? I don't think that we're going to go back to this focus on physical buildings and physical places. It's still going to have a role. My main question is, what's the best way to teach? And my focus is, you know, we've got faculty that are amazing here. Where else can we teach? What, how can I increase the global access to expertise? You know, there's people in Africa, there's people in India, there's people in China who, you know, are desperately in need of education and we have no ability to put them all on an airplane. And it's completely unrealistic to bring them to a physical university in the United States for example but how can we work with them to improve the educational opportunities that they've got through these new technologies you know we've talked about it forever at a university but i think you know the, there's the whole idea of moocs these are all online classes and none of them have really taken over but what i think you're seeing in covid times is that it's this new push to figure out how to do this right for these short periods of time But I I think that that stuff is going to persist.
0: It also sounds like, you know, building on what you're saying, it's not just about answering questions of how best to teach, but also really thinking quite deeply about what is it we even get from particular kinds of experiences or, you know, so if, if we are talking about, you know, for instance, the university experience, part of that, of course, is the teaching. But there's also the sort of, well, what does it mean to be social? What does it mean to... For particularly for undergraduates, grow up um, and move away from home, and and you know, it, I suppose opening our minds a little to how that perhaps can be done differently. Um, if you're to try and see that sort of silver lining, in some sense, you can say it's taken away a sort of sheen of disbelief that things can be done differently, and sort of maybe I hope increase some kind of creativity or innovative thought around how you recreate or create different kinds of experiences that people get beyond just the kind of obvious stuff, you know, whether it's you go to the office to work, but what else do you get from that and how do we create that in different kind of ways?
1: Yeah, and I think it's that splitting of the question that you kind of bring up that's really important because right now we have this one thing which is going to college, which is both learning all of this stuff from my career later and growing up at the same time. And what you're seeing right now is that there's a tension about how we do that And I really liked the way that you put it, the sheen of disbelief that we could rethink these big things. Um, You know, I'm kind of living this on two sides right now, both as a professor at a university, but then also as a parent of a college freshman who's having to go through this. And, you know, my son, I think, is learning the, the technical side of his education very well. But I do think that now that we have to think about how can we do this growing up part differently and better? And the important thing for me is do it intentionally to recognize this as a core part of what needs to be done for kids of this age. And how can we do that best? And that's different than this kind of mixed thing of a college experience that we've got now. I think if we start asking those questions, we're we're going to come up with different answers than what we're doing now. And if we do it right, they'll be better.
0: Well, I mean, I think you used the word that I think is important for this episode, but you've used it in a slightly different context, which is mixed. We're talking about mixed reality here, right? It's not about completely replacing. It's not about being fully virtual. It's not about the physical not being important. The whole part of mixed reality is that you're layering on top and enhancing and, and trying to make better. And I hope that, you know, COVID and the experience that it's putting a lot of us through allows us to see that potential as opposed to seeing it as this kind of scary replacement that technology is often understandably considered at
1: least. Yeah. And, and I think that a lot of that comes with doing things intentionally and doing things based on science. I hate that I have to say that today, but you've really got to show that something new is actually effective better than the things that are coming before. And I think that's a requirement before you start to to do anything. There's a cinematographer who I was fortunate enough to meet. Her name's Eve Cohen. She works in the field of VR and AR. And she has a set of three questions that she asks anybody before she starts working with them. And we've kind of adapted them. We've, we've named them the Eve Cohen questions. And it's, why you, why now, why this medium? And we use this all the time to really decide how we're going to do projects and how we're going to move things forward. You've got to have the right person. It's got to be the right time. You've got to be addressing a problem that's really important. But then really, why this thing? Why this medium? We don't do everything in mixed reality. There's some things that work better on a phone. There's some things that work better on a website. There's some things that work better, frankly, written out on a sheet of paper, right? If you're not asking those questions, then you're just kind of just flailing in the end, I think. You've really got to ask those questions and then do the science to prove that they're effective, and then then you can make change. Otherwise, it's just going to, people are going to be, you know, feel threatened and,
0: and it'll be tech Maybe. for tech's sake. Yeah. Exactly. Mark, that's a really lovely to note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing both the kind of experience of hollow anatomy. It's absolutely amazing to hear what you guys have achieved over time, but also obviously all these amazing successes and it not really being a replacement, but something that's massively enhancing learning. Um, but also these, um, I guess, more philosophical, but really important points that we've covered at the end here when it comes to thinking about how technology really can enhance enhance lives in our world as a whole. So thank you so much for joining us
1: it was great to be here thanks
0: that's it for this week thank you so much for tuning in you can find out more about mark's work and indeed some of the broader themes we discussed today in the show notes if you enjoyed the episode please do take a few moments to rate and review the podcast it really helps other people discover the show and don't forget to hit subscribe to tune in next time to continue our conversation about innovation resilience and our capacity to succeed
1: Learn how Microsoft Dynamics 365 Remote Assist enables field technicians to collaborate with experts in a mixed reality environment, from virtually anywhere to solve problems in real time. Request a live demo today by following the link in the episode description.